Welcome back to the Replatform Podcast. Thanks as always for tuning. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us. Uh, and please do subscribe if you like this episode. Yeah, we want to get as many people listen as possible. Uh, and we'd like, um, yeah, we'd love likes and ratings on Apple and Spotify and also on YouTube, please. It helps to extend our reach. Well, that's our shameless plug over. Let's get cracking with the episode. So it's myself, James Gerd, and I'm joined by my co-host, Paul Rogers. How are you doing today, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, good, Tart. I'm looking forward to our little Talking Heads episode. There's no guest today, it's just myself and Paul waxing lyrical about e-commerce and replatforming. So we there's a question that we often get asked in projects, which is, what roles do I need in my project team? What are the key roles for replatforming? I'm sure you, this comes up quite quite often for you, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, all the time. I think it's usually one of the first questions I would get asked when someone like, starts thinking about replatforming. Yeah, exactly. Same for me. Um, and, and typically, especially in the SME space where people might not have the, that high level project experience or they might not have gone through it as an organisation before. And it's such an important question um, because you've got to get the right blend of skills and you've also got to get the right cultural mix of people who could work effectively because these projects are typically long. Uh, complexity varies depending on size of business. Um, and therefore, people have got to work together effectively. So understanding roles and responsibilities and knowing which person to fit into them is really important. So, Paul, a good starting point for we we share our views on what are the key roles and what should they be doing is what is the impact of not having the right people and the right roles in place? Like, What are the risks to a business? So I think um, the, ob- the obvious one is like, I guess, projects not being delivered to the right standard or on time or on budget, dependent on the kind of um, people that maybe aren't best suited to the role they're filling. I think um, I know one of the bits that you're going to talk about is kind of getting all this stuff managed up front. For me, that's the key. And I think the other thing is a lot. one of the biggest reasons I get asked this question is usually because someone's trying to balance the kind of day-to-day trading of a website or kind of, you know, trading through peaks or, you know, there's other projects going on in the business. Um, and essentially how can they build a team, particularly with the bigger companies, how can they build a team that can successfully deliver um, a replatforming project? So the impact actually might be on other areas rather than the replatforming project as well. Yeah, I think that's a really nice summary. So like with that in mind... You know, there are risks, all these projects have risks, but getting things defined and structured up front can help mitigate that risk. So let's talk about key roles and what they do. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of um, dovetail here on some key areas. I'm gonna start on the business and finance side. So number one, project sponsor. Project sponsor is somebody who has a board level um, you know, senior management um, uh, executive power, which means that they are able to get decisions made. And they are also able to help if there is any escalation required where an issue in a project needs to be taken up to that senior uh, business level for you know, validation, review, sign-off, et cetera. A sponsor is essential because they give the rest of the project team that representation at decision-making level um, to ensure that projects don't grind to a standstill through um, inefficient decision-making or lack of the ability to make a decision when one's needed. A good example of this is in, in budgets. So. I've been in projects before where something has been learned during the in-depth technical discovery workshops where actually some additional budget has been required because of um, business process changes that have created additional development needs and the business would either have to accept a compromised solution or it needs to find that extra budget. That can then lead to to, um, an inertia in the project where the project can't 
proceed because the budget's not approved. And having somebody who's got the, the impetus at board level to take that up, fight for that cause and get that um, resolved very, very quickly, whatever the decision is, so that the project can then progress, it's important. So that's the sponsor's role. Then got client lead, um, who is the business owner. They are the day-to-day um, uh, person who's got day-to-day responsibility for running the project internally. And that means coordinating internal resource, where there are actions that the client team has to take, making sure those actions are being taken and that the right priorities are being focused on. Typically, this is the e-commerce, senior e-commerce person because they will need to have an understanding of the e-commerce demands for the project so that they can yeah, instill e-commerce good practice and make sure decision-making is done with the best interest, not just of the e-commerce business, but the wider um, business as well and e-commerce's touch points with it. So you, know, you would expect this person to be one of your classic T-shaped, um, you know, very specific expertise in e-commerce, but generalist commercial uh, and business skills across the business. Next one is uh, subject matter experts. And this includes all the key functional areas of business, including IT, finance, you know, um, logistics, merchandising, trading. And you know, there are an exponential number of these depending on the size of business. When I worked with House of Fraser, I think we had about 20 20 odd um, subject matter experts simply because of the size of the teams. You know, there was an SEO subject matter expert, there was a paid media expert, etc. So these people, their responsibility is not to run the project. They're not, you know, basically seconded out of their day-to-day job, but they have to have part of their time dedicated to this project to support as and when their input is needed to define requirements to validate um, captured requirements and make sure that anything that's passed through to development streams is accurate and represents their business area, that they're involved in um, uh, UAT. So when things are being deployed before going live, they are validating that the development has been done to the right standards based on their requirements and they're helping the project team problem solve. So if there is an issue with one uh, requirement that's related to their part of the business, they work with the project team to find the right compromising solutions that the project can then proceed. And they are absolutely essential because if you don't get their buy-in from the start, you can find that projects get derailed later on because you come to a grind and a halt when the development team needs input, but this person who's responsible for, say, SEO has not been being brought into the project and therefore they can't hit the ground running. Um, and then the last one for me in this area, which is dependent, we've had this conversation before, Paul, haven't we, about size of business and the impact on how many people you need, is procurement. In some businesses, there are specific procurement processes that have to be adhered to in order to get technology and vendors signed off, to get SI, systems integrated partners, new third-party tools that you need in the project. And there is a procurement officer who goes, who ensures that the project follows the procurement process for sign-off. And that person can be a separate stakeholder. In smaller businesses, the person who makes all of these decisions, the subject matter expert, the person who's responsible for getting like the budget approved and you know, signing off on the investment in tools and you know, putting credit cards online to pay for a third-party tool is often the same person. It's the e-commerce elite. So the, you've got to understand the roles and responsibilities, and then you can decide who in the business is appropriate for them or whether you need external. So that's my bit. Have I, any obvious ones you think I've missed out, Paul? No, I don't think so. I think you've covered everything. Like you said, I think there's kind of variables dependent on the size of the business and project and everything else. But no, I think that's covered everything from my perspective. Cool. So let's, um, why don't you go uh, lead on to the creative side then? Because the creative is very much related to this because essentially they are a subject matter expert, but but it's often a very distinct phase of the project. Yeah, perfect. So I think... Um, like to start off, I guess there's massive, there's loads of variables in this and it depends on the scope of the project. So my first part of this 
uh, this one I'm going to base on uh, a full redesign as part of a replatforming project, which isn't always the case, not always the best thing for the business. But um, essentially, I'm uh, defining the roles for where there is a full redesign. Um, and I was discussing this with someone the other day. And I think from my perspective, I think the ideal uh, team structure, and this is basing it on like the types of clients I work with, which is typically like a premium fashion brand, maybe, um, would be you have your kind of internal uh, creative lead um, who might be like the creative director or, I don't know, head of brand or whoever else. And they're essentially responsible for brand maybe uh, a level of art direction, like content, um, everything kind of around, um, yeah, branding content. Um, so you have their kind of input. You then maybe have an external kind of creative director. So a lot of the best projects I've worked on, um, they've kind of brought in an external expert who is literally just day in, day out, um, working on kind of designing um and coming up with different concepts for kind of best-in-class sites within a specific vertical. So they've got lots of experience at kind of delivering, um, I guess, yeah, best-of-breed sites. Um, you then might have some, and that person would kind of collaborate with the internal person when it comes to building out like a set of digital brand guidelines, maybe some of the art direction stuff. Maybe they would kind of like um, collaborate on some of the content and like push that a bit harder, et cetera. Um, you would then have ideally... Um, so dependent. So if you've got an external development agency as well, you'd probably have someone from that team, be it their creative lead or uh, potentially like a very senior front-end developer, input into that conversation as well. So that you've essentially got different influences. You've got the brand person. You've got um, the kind of more creative person that is thinking beyond what's happening internally and beyond the platform that you're building on and the templates and everything else. Um, and then they're kind of collaborating to build something that's unique um, in line with how the platform works and also is you know heavily based on the existing brand guidelines, but maybe there's like some scope to kind of um, evolve those a little bit as well. Um, obviously, the, and then you may also have an internal person that's responsible for like providing content and kind of owns content internally and i would say that's like my preferred structure these days um for going through like a proper redesign because i think there's a lot of development agencies that do really good design work but it's, i don't think there's too many that are like you know top of the industry for both design and development so i really like the idea of separating it out but equally i mean it can still work really well i mean we've done a number of projects with development agencies who have done a really good job but i think if you want best like proper like you know industry leading front end experience i'm personally a big fan of using an external design agency or creative director etc um and then i think if it's if it's not a redesign so if you're replatforming and you know you've got a really tight timeline um, and you're essentially looking at taking the existing uh, website and moving it onto a new platform, maybe with some level of like functional evolution or, you know, some optimizations around like mobile checkout, et cetera. Um, I think in that scenario, you probably don't need any external design resource and you can either do it with the development agency or with an in-house team. Um, and obviously that first bit is quite um it's based on quite a specific scenario because a lot of people do have actual in in-house teams and you know they're pretty good and maybe there's a bit of bias internally as well where they kind of have to use that team um yeah do you what do you think james have you got anything to add to that bit 
Yeah, I think it's a good distinction in, in terms of the roles you need depend on, on what type of project. So if you're just lifting and shifting to a new technology and you're not doing any design, then typically somebody who's got control of the in-house brand styles and, and, and creative execution is sufficient alongside a good development agency with good front-end developers because they will just inherit if, if the digital design guidelines are to the good standards, 100%. Um, but yeah, I like the thing you said about uh, about the, the ch- it's almost like positively challenging the internal status quo because a lot of times from an internal branding and design point of view there's a very prescriptive way of doing it this is how we do it but it doesn't necessarily have that wider external perspective of okay but we've done this for 15 20 different websites and we've learned different ways and maybe we could improve the overall user experience and user journey with a bit of additional thinking still maintain it within the overall brand guidelines and style and creative delivery so yeah i 100 agree external perspectives to challenge internal brand teams are very important it is the politics bit is hard on that bit though, isn't it because yeah, some businesses are open to it and others are but you need that role you fundamentally have to have somebody who's got the ability to look at the overall user experience and ensure that it's delivered correctly and that user interaction design is done well. And brand people can be wonderful at executing on brand vision strategy, but they might not necessarily understand the nuances of interaction design on like mo- on mobile devices, for example. Yeah. And I think at that point you just said there around the politics, so I've done two projects recently with very brand-led businesses and it worked really well with like an external person collaborating with the internal team and then collaborating with the development agency. Um, But it only worked well because the brand, those kind of internal creative directors were played a bit. Firstly, there was a lot of work that went into getting them bought into using someone external because ultimately their creative, their broader, you know, their remit is broader. They're not specialists on the kind of, you know, web design, UI, UX design side and kind of the new age of like modern engaging kind of, you know, themes and everything else. Um, And then secondly, they played a big part in selecting the partner, which I think is really important. Yeah, excellent. So let's move on. Next um, kind of grouping is project management office. So the project management office, it sounds like a very formal term for bigger projects, but it's relevant to everything. It's simply the the how the core project is organised so that it's functionally fit for purpose. Um, there are some core roles. And again, we're talking about roles and responsibilities. It doesn't mean that every project has to have different people for each role. It could be one person doing this, and it often is in smaller businesses. So number one is project manager. There's two, but there's a technical and a business PM. Um, the technical PM is the person responsible for ensuring that all of the requirements are captured in the right detail that can be pushed through into development sprints and that the development teams are being managed effectively, that um, sprint planning is done, the output of sprints is reviewed, um, that you, know, you, you have an assessment of um, any issues that come out of sprints that need to be taken into the next one, that timelines are being managed accurately. So if there's any slippage that it's dealt with um, when it happens rather than left until it becomes like an un- unmanageable issue in a project, it's so, so important. And that technical person typically comes from the development agency. They would lead the project during implementation but they would need a counterpart within the client team, which is why I split out to technical business PM. Now, the business PM in, uh, I guess, medium to large organisations is normally a specific role. In medium businesses, often you find it's a contractor brought in who's an e-commerce project manager by trade, because often uh, medium-sized businesses don't necessarily have that skill as a full-time person. And they would work alongside the technical PM and the developers 
to ensure that the project is controlled and all the internal stakeholders of the client are managed and inputting correctly. On smaller businesses, that tech, that business PM is like the business lead. It's the e-commerce manager because you don't have the luxury or the budget to bring in somebody else. But that role is needed. A, a development agency's pet project manager needs a day-to-day counterpart uh, who they can interface with and who can take issues back to the business or questions back for resolution. That's critical to keep the project going. Um Business analyst is the next one. So these projects often unearth uh, inefficiencies in business process. So I've seen this before in the way that product is onboarded into websites, where product data sits, how it gets input into systems, what happens when there's an outage of stock. There are a lot of manual processes that still exist that take unnecessary time at businesses. Part of the re-platforming, client teams often want to unpick that efficiency and improve process. But if the process isn't documented in the first place, very, very hard for a development partner to review it, assess it, and show what the, the 2B improved process will be. So BA is very good at coming in and, and not only just capturing business um, uh, requirements, but properly documenting business process in the right way that it can be used within the project. Now, that is often provided by the agency. It could be a contract resource. I worked on one project, a, a, a fashion project uh, uh, as well, and there was no BA specific BA skill provision and we basically brought somebody in for two months to do a, a an intensive um, bit of process mapping and documentation so that we had it all to take into the project for the technical PM. So again, it doesn't have to be a full-time thing. It can be we have three or four things we've got a task we've got to do. Let's bring in a contractor to do it. Um, and then the other ones in project management, you need an account manager from your agency you're working with. They have to have date, you know, the responsibility for making sure that that, that your relationship is being managed effectively, your expectations are being set, that any issues that crop up, if there's any disagreements or there's um, you know, a change to scope and that involves changing budget or changing costs, that this is managed commercially effectively. So they, the account manager would work alongside a project manager to deal with the commercial elements and the relationship side to allow the PM to focus purely on project delivery. However, depending on project size, the account manager and PM are the same person. So again, it's the role you have to understand. There's commercial management and there's project delivery management. And then the last one I guess I'll put in here is a change manager. All of these projects involve large amounts of change um, um, or unless you're just doing a very simple lift and shift and that is it, and therefore the change is easy to manage. But still then you've got data transfer, customer data, order data, history, order history migration. You might be update, you might be doing a brand refresh as Paul, you alluded to earlier, you might be changing third-party systems. There's internal process changes. You've got to train people up on new systems. So there's all this change going on, and that needs documenting to map out what the change um, requirements are, what the impact is, who's affected, and having those as individual work tasks that can be tracked and prioritised with timelines to make sure that when you get to launch, everybody is ready to start working on that new platform. And it, I've worked on projects like House of Fraser, huge um, uh, like global IT project where there was a specific change manager and they were full-time on the project from start to finish. And I've worked in other businesses where I've sat and worked with the e-commerce lead to explain what change management um, streams need to be thought about so that they can go off and manage it directly rather than having a, a specialist in there. So again, the role has to be understood. Who does it is to, entirely dependent on the size and complexity of the project. Um, so that's my my kind of garbled summary of the project uh, project management office. A- anything anything you think's missing? Um, anything you'd add to that? 
No, I don't think so. I think the um, the BA one's an interesting one because I think um, a lot of the companies that I would work with, and I know uh, the smaller ones you would work with as well, wouldn't typically have that um, that role internally. But I think if you're, you know, when you're looking at agencies and everything else, I do think that is a, a good role to have in a project team across both sides um yeah just because it kind of like enforces a certain level of detail around kind of scoping you know usually having like a specialist ba would encourage um you know broader thinking and like you know more kind of business uh context as well um so yeah i think that's kind of an undervalued role overall yeah i, I would agree i mean i, I did a project with the rhs royal horticultural society and they're, they're, a, they're a big brand right but the project in re- in relation to other ones I've done, given the budgets and the size of their e-commerce, um, was a small project with a small project team. And they had a BA internally seconded. It, um, she was seconded out of the IT team. And the value she had to the project was immense because the business wasn't experiencing capturing requirements and documenting. They didn't want to spend money on external consultant me documented business requirements because that's obviously not as cost effective and she was fantastic at really getting to the heart of what the requirement was and validating it and going internally to the stakeholders validating what it really meant and why and then working to get the prioritization right that meant the documentation quality that went into the project for the the um, agency partner to do the evaluation estimation and then to, to push into development queues was way way better and it also meant that the quality of the development work that came back out for UAT was higher than it would have been if the requirements had been, you know, muddled or or not properly spec'd. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good segue for you to go on to the more technical side of the project. Yeah, so I think um, this one's another one similar to Creative where there's loads of variables um, dependent on kind of the size of the business and everything else. And I also think you'll probably have uh, maybe a different kind of, or you'll have different experience on this with some of the bigger projects you've worked on because I typically work on smaller projects. Um, but the first one is Solution Architect. So from in my experience, a Solution Architect would usually be a platform expert. Um, so if it, you know if it's a Magento migration, there might be either an internal or independent Solution Architect that's been brought into the project team um, that is essentially kind of defining uh, certain kind of technical solutions. Um, they're overlooking kind of um, the quality of what's being delivered. Um, they're kind of governing things all the way through from a technical perspective. And then they're potentially taking on certain deliverables as well. So things like certain aspects of data migration or some other kind of technical considerations with third parties. Um, but they're essentially there as, as an architect. Um, and then dependent on the structure of the internal team, you might have a lead engineer who would be making a lot of those kind of technical decisions. And if the uh, developments being delivered internally um, they would be kind of overlooking the delivery of um, what's being built um, and kind of managing their team you then have back-end and front-end developers and again you might it's actually I feel like particularly with the brands that I work with it's become really common for those for them to want to take development in-house they outsource the build and then they're kind of building out teams so you might have like a bit of a hybrid as well um, but yes, you may have back-end and front-end developers internally. Back-end developers obviously working more on kind of, um, yeah, the back-end side of things and kind of, you know, um, custom kind of modules and any kind of potential some level of integration work, et cetera. And then front-end kind of building out the theme um, and working with all the different uh, kind of third parties that impact the front-end. Um, I've put IT team in here just because the majority of our clients would have someone within the IT team who would own the integrations 
Um, and maybe they've kind of, you know, they've got their own kind of integration layer or middleware or whatever, and they would kind of own the delivery of that side of things. Um, Scrum Master, so essentially on kind of, uh, I guess, bit of a hybrid between that PMO piece and and technical piece, but more responsible for kind of delivery. Um, test leads. So this is quite an interesting one. I think this is a we could almost do a discussion, uh, an episode on this kind of testing and UAT ourselves anyway but you've got kind of different levels of testing um throughout the project and then the uat phase so the test lead might be responsible for kind of writing test scripts um, and then actually kind of undertaking some level of testing and managing different resources as well as part of that um but yeah so you've got the more technical side so integration testing some of the back end testing etc um and then the kind of front end uat as well um and actually, so you've listed out QA and UAT separately here, so that kind of falls into that one anyway, but I know you can split those out anyway. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Anything that you would change? Because I guess, yeah, like I said, I think you've probably got some different experiences to me as well. I don't know. It's interesting because you say that I worked on bigger projects, but I mean, the brands you've worked with, I, I think it's just, it's different where the scale is. Like you've worked on, on massive brands like Japan guys. I mean, they, they are, they're doing big numbers online. A lot of the businesses I've worked with tend to be more traditional organizations rather than exactly. like newer D2C brands that are fast growth and massive backing. So I think that the, the scale is, is similar. It's just the nature of the business and the kind of resources they have in house yeah. and legacy. Um, so the business I tend to work with wouldn't have as many, they wouldn't be as strong on the engineering side. But they've got traditional IT teams, so yeah. I, I agree with you. I think I think the the cut and the split is important. Who does it and where they come from? So the more traditional business I work with would more likely need to get some of those specialist engineering roles on contract because they don't have them in house. And and after the project, they probably wouldn't need them because they tend to not want to go down the route of building out their own internal development team for the e-commerce. They quite still like that. We do IT. And e-commerce is run by a development partner. Yeah. Um, but but having somebody who's the IT lead from a, uh, as you said, makes perfect sense. Somebody who from an IT um, systems architecture point of view. So it's almost like provides the solution architect role from an internal to make sure from an integration path point of view, um, and you know from a data transfer and from a compliance point of view that it's adhering to the business standards. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. It's horses for courses. You need these skills. It's just who provides them. Yeah. Yeah, and the other one that you kind of touched on there, I guess the IT team are likely to provide all the kind of systems diagrams to all the kind of different external people coming in. Yeah, yeah. well, you say they're likely to. The number of times I've been yeah. in projects with Good with point. big successful businesses where the standard of internal documentation is utterly painful because there's there's just, you know, it's evolved and become a Frankenstein and there's a picture over here and a picture over there and it's not joined up and nobody really truly knows exactly how the flows work. And this is why I come back to the BA bit because in that type of project, the BA skill is essential regardless of whether it comes from your new agency partner or you get a contractor in. Because if you just if you just hand requirements over and the internal process is not fit for purpose, it doesn't matter. You're gonna you're, you're gonna run into problems later on in the project. Yeah, I think that's so you just shift the cost. Well, that's another one we could probably do a whole episode on. So the other thing that I've seen is where I've worked on a re-platform project, documentation's pretty weak and, you know, the platform's been fairly heavily customised and there's like, you know, a PIM in place or things like that. And then as 
fairly it's fairly common if it's a big re-platform project that quite a few people leave afterwards and essentially there's very little then for like the new team coming in to understand um the technology stack and how things were built and everything else and that's where you start to get kind of preconceptions and um you know yeah kind of um things just fall apart a little bit yeah, exactly. We, we had this issue when I was working at, at um, House of Fraser and it was around wanting to improve like the customer comms and, and use of notifications. And on the face value, it was really simple. It's okay, we want to use these triggers to improve how we communicate with customers, deliver a better customer. Brilliant. That's a good win in the project. But what hadn't been understood is the process was dependent on another system, which didn't matter what we set up from the, front, from the, the back end of the e-commerce. It couldn't trigger it because it needed the other system to, to generate the trigger. So therefore there was a dependency that wasn't understood, the process broke down. So you spend that time and effort getting the e-commerce system set up to deliver something that can't work because the rest of the process is broken. And that's why BAs are worth their weight in gold. Um, and I've had this conversation, I say conversation, debate, whatever you want to call it with some client teaser, you say, spend 10 to 20,000 pound now. And it seems horrible because it's like, we don't want to spend that. But that could unpick and save you more in the long term because you'll have to redo parts of the project that that now have to be recoded from the e-commerce point of view because it won't work. So sometimes spending more upfront saves you um, uh, in the long run. But it's a, it's a hard hard business case to try and argue sometimes. Um, so we've gone through. So for everyone listening, we've gone through a lot of different roles. Hopefully that's given. Yeah, for some of you, you'll know a lot of this already. For others, it might be new or it might be useful to think of roles in different ways. And you can now go, okay, who in our business or who in our partners should do this role? With that in mind, Paul, let's let's go on to a, 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 another question, which is, which of these roles should you always have covered in-house wherever possible and why? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's probably easier to answer the other way around, but in-house um you can't get off that easy there's no fences yeah yeah it's an interesting one isn't it i think um you need some level of creative in-house i think you just need someone to own that part and kind of you know own the communications around the creative side in-house you know providing content answering questions i think you need someone that's like brand or creative in-house um and then ideally more, but that's kind of, I think, probably not, no, that's not strictly true, actually, but you need some level of kind of influence from a creative person in-house. You need someone making decisions, someone that kind of understands things, someone that has access to all the content and brand guidelines and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think you need the roles that you said at the start. So uh, project sponsor, you know, someone that is kind of ultimately has a level of responsibility within the business um that can sign stuff off etc cetera, etc cetera. i think um and then alongside that the budget holder which might be the same person um yeah client lead equally could well probably not the same person it could be um i think for me they're the ones that are completely critical and then in an ideal world you'd probably have it team as well and a pm but um, I'm, I'm almost like I'm thinking about some of those bigger projects and then the tiny brands that are just starting out. Um, so, yeah, I think they're the ones that, for me, that are critical. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. For me, I, I look at three, three capabilities. Number one is strategy. Number two is governance. And number three is execution. And they have to be owned in-house. And again, it doesn't matter who, 
and whether it's one person, two people, three people or more. But the strategy bit is what are our project goals, objectives and success criteria? What are we doing this for? What is our vision and, and how we know what success is? Because if you're not driving that internally, you're you're going to lose <laughs> at some point because there's no control and and it's really hard to know where to prioritize effort and investment if you don't have that clear strategic vision um secondly the governance bit you talked about like things like budgets um and the, the project discipline is somebody has got to have the ownership of this is going wrong or this is going well or we've got an issue we need to fix it and somebody somewhere has to draw the line in the sand because if you've got conflict or if you've got disagreement at some point you've got to nip that in the bud and resolve it so the project doesn't get derailed and add two three months to the timeline and then the execution is it's just making sure shit gets done right it's okay we've got three tasks that have been on hold for three weeks they they just need an answer now enough's enough let's stop messing around let's just get a decision made even if we have to revisit that in the future but let's let's you know let's not boil the ocean on this i think if you get those three things covered even if it's one person who's just pointing other people in direction and saying okay well the pm is done external the project delivery but i'm governing it then then great yeah that makes sense um and then the next one i guess the the other one to that is like maybe what's best to outsource yeah okay from your project experience what what roles do you think are useful to outsource rather than let's buy somebody in-house yeah, so I think I've already kind of covered this a little bit in the creative one. I kind of went the other way around with that answer, but I personally like outsourcing design to a specialist. I think I've just gradually come to that conclusion over time that if you bring in the right external creative people, the site just ends up in a much better place. So I'm a big fan of that. I think development typically, you know, outsourcing to a specialist team, you'll end up with a better um a better quality site essentially particularly and i'm again i work a lot with the SaaS platform so it's mostly front end your outsourcing and having a team of people that you know are working on multiple sites within that platform and kind of framework day in day out um i think you benefit from outsourcing it and typically i find outsourcing helps from a timeline perspective as well um there's less risk around that side um I think some of the subject matter expert areas potentially dependent on the size of the business. So you talked about SEO, you talked about PPC. Um, Webinars is a classic one for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's another one. Um, I'm not a massive fan of outsourcing QA, which is quite an interesting one. I think that's another kind of interesting debate. Um, maybe there's some level of like additional um like an extra level you could outsource but i personally think a lot of the qa needs to be done by let, people. Let, let's do a testing episode separately yeah yeah because yeah. i agree because discussing like how to do testing what you should test that's a that's an episode in its own yeah completely agree um and that does seem to be a bit of a theme a lot of the development agencies i've worked with recently like suggest outsourcing testing but i think you can outsource a level but not all of it um it's not straightforward to do exactly yeah um and then, yeah, I mean, the other one is dependent on the size of the project. Um, I think it can add a lot of value having someone external coming in that really understands the project again. Sorry, platform again and the technologies, um, particularly if it's like, you know, a headless build, um, someone that's kind of done it all before, you know, has worked on similar projects. So them coming in as probably a solution architect would be really valuable. 
And again, that kind of BA person, even if it's just at the start, kind of enforcing a level of like definition. Um, again, I think that can be really valuable dependent on budgets, et cetera. Um, yeah. What do you think? Yeah. So, so in, I, 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 my approach to this was, was uh, is skewed by experience I had years back with a B2B client. It's probably three, four years ago um, where they were looking at replatforming and they were looking at fundamentally changing their design, the user journey, the functionality. They had, they had big aims for growth and they had a very smart husband and wife um, uh, team running the business and they had some core skills, but they didn't have an e-commerce team. And they had a timeline pressure from an investment point of view to get this sorted. And there wasn't time to properly bring it because where they were located was hard to get the right level of skill in from an e-commerce leadership and project leadership point of view. So we ended up recruiting them a, a basically a, a, a virtual outsourced um, project team, which included the e-commerce lead, so head of e-commerce, um, project manager, and and um, uh, I think it was a digital marketing person as well, because they were paid me. It was a really strong part of their, their acquisition piece. And we did we we um, we under the pros and cons of this approach versus recruitment, and it was potentially wait six plus months to get a team in place or get cracking and gradually transition once they could bring in. So the advice that I gave them was go down this route. We can outsource it. You can get the right people work together. Here's the risks. We can mitigate them. Put a mitigation plan in place for things like you know lack of communication or whatever it might be. Um, but they had such a strong um, senior management team in those two owners who were commercially astute business savvy knew their customers knew their brand and were very good at making decisions and were very astute around budget uh, uh, budget management there actually the risk was was reduced because they could provide the governance and the strategy bit with the team who had the expertise to execute at an e-commerce level and it worked really well it actually worked really really well and they worked together for, for about 18 months i think in the end so i that changed my mind because i was a I'd said at the start to him, it's like, you know, I have reservations because I worry about not having the people next to you, but we've got the right people. We put mitigation in place and it did work. Um, so it changed my mind on actually you can make it work with external people, provided you have the governance structure in place to control it. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's it. We, this is obviously the second time we've recorded this episode. First one wasn't brilliant um, from a technical and wi-fi perspective and i think the last time you answered that question you almost convinced me a bit more that it can work as well but i think it's like you said it's getting like the parameters set making sure like you've got people that are like you know really ready to communicate making sure that yeah all of those layers of comms are perfect like layers of sign off etc but yeah i think you've almost convinced me that it can work well yeah, it's also contracts because it's not just a standard. You've got to really get your contracts nailed down with each of these people, all their roles and responsibilities are and what the expectation is um, so that they are, when they're signing up, that they know that they have that level of ownership within the project. It's not just a head of e-commerce. It's a head of e-commerce with project delivery ownership of the e-commerce project who must do these four or five roles within the project. So knowing that, because then you can find the right person. Because if you just go for a head of e-commerce, you might find somebody who is brilliant at trading a website but has no major project experience for replatform and therefore would be learning on the job. And you can't afford that in this scenario because you have to have somebody who can bring that learning to you to benefit you as the business owner. So yeah, exactly. It's, all of this has risk. Every, every model you take for using skilled people has a risk. You've got to just decide what the risks are and then put a mitigation around it. It doesn't make it perfect, but at least it, it kind of reduces the likelihood of, of things going peak tongue. Yeah. 
Um, so that that brings us to the end of our question. I'm hoping this has been useful for people. I know it always feels like a whistle stop tour, but we've talked a lot about the different roles, who you bring in uh, in house, what what ownership you should have in house versus what you can rely on external people for. Um, so, Paul, if if you could leave listeners with one like handy wrap up comment or piece of advice, what would it be? That's a good question. Um, I think that it would be, and this is something we haven't talked about, it's not even really that related to this episode, but there's a couple of things that you've said that have led me to say this. But um, when it comes to planning the project, I think most of these projects are going to be like a CapEx project. And I think it's really when you go and creating, when you go and create the business case, make sure you think about what you really need because you mentioned a point earlier I can't remember exactly what it was but it was like you know put that extra 20 grand in um you'll benefit from it further down the line I guess just thinking about what you're putting into that capex and how you can get the most out of a project um, I think we've put an extra 20 grand in for digital juggler wasn't it yeah something like that yeah that <laughs> um but yeah no I think that's the thing like just try to really think about how you get the the best out of everyone in a project and making sure that business case you're putting forward um, is to, yeah, covers you essentially. I think that's probably the best way of wrapping up. And actually, yeah, I think I would, I would, I would definitely agree with that is, is look at, uh, look at what you're trying to deliver and look at all the skills you need to achieve it and what you have and what you don't have and provision for it. Even if it's a, okay, I think SEO, we need technical SEO support. Okay. I'm estimating 15 K 20 estimate on the high side. Because going back to a finance team or the budget holder later on saying, hey, we've come in 20 grand under budget, only gets you brownie points. If you go back and go, yeah, I underestimated that, people get a bit annoyed and it's hot, it's harder to fight for. And also it can erode trust in your kind of uh, planning. So yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good parting point is think carefully about your cost of ownership model and roles before you make the decision. Um, so wonderful. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. And it's been useful. Thanks as always for listening. We really do appreciate you tuning in and taking the time. Keep an ear out uh, for our next episode. There'll be one on testing coming up. We've just we learned that during today. And let us know any topics you'd like to cover. And also, as I said at the start, please do subscribe if you're new to this. You know, the more subscribers, the better. It helps raise our profile. And we'd love a rating on Apple or Spotify or YouTube. You know, we're obviously trying to get get the name out for the Replatform podcast. Um, so yeah, catch up with you next time. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.